Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle of James, James chapter 5. It's a joy to worship the Lord together. If this is the first time you are with us at Christ Church, welcome. If you're joining us online, welcome you as well. And trust that the Lord will speak in and through his word to us. It's been a number of months since we've looked at the, um, at the book of James. Um, I say every time to remind you that James is very practical. He kind of deals with a variety of subjects about what it means to live out the Christian life. And in a way similar to the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature, particularly the book of Proverbs, he, he deals with very practical things of, of Christian living. Those books were given to God's people to teach them how to live faithful lives under the covenant. And, and James is kind of a new covenant proverb book in a sense and speaking to us how to live faithful lives. Um, earlier in chapter 4, James has warned us about our desires and how disordered desires leads to conflicts and quarrels. The antidote to that situation is humility, James tells us. Living a life of repentance and dependence upon God, upon our Savior. In the closing verses of chapter, chapter 4, um, in the previous text that we looked at a number of months ago, James has warned us about the sin of presumption. And those who would say, well, I'm going to do this. I have these plans and I'm going to go into this city and make money. And James says, be careful. You don't know what your life consists of. You're not guaranteed tomorrow and how we must treat every day as a gift from God and seek to live every day for God's glory. And in a similar theme, James continues his, his uh, offering of wisdom to us in chapter 5 and is very practical about how we live and he gives very stern warnings on those who would misuse the blessings of riches. So let us go to God's word, but before we do, let us go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we need you and we need your word. Lord, how your word corrects us and how we need it. Lord, it is sharp and powerful and quicker than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that this morning it would go in cutting and come out cutting. Lord, that it would, that it would remove the parts of our heart that, that are set upon things other than you. May we wholly follow you, Lord, we pray. And may your word correct us as we need to have this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James 5, beginning with verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I shared with a few friends on Friday the subject of this morning's message, that it was a message to the rich. And, and one of the men that were there said, oh, well, good. It's, it's not about me. I don't have to listen. Well, 
That's why I've titled this message, um, A Warning to the Rich and to All. A warning to the rich and to all. You see, in the opening verse, it is directed to the rich man, but there is a lesson for all of us here. For I, if I were to ask each of you privately if you considered yourself to be rich, I think most of us would say no, because we can compare ourselves with others and we recognize that, that we're not very rich, or we at least feel not very rich. Some of that has to do with with the, the, the battle for contentment and the battle against envy that, that was already mentioned this morning. However, compared to much of the earth's population, we're fabulously rich. Now, there's substantial controversy among commentators, um, and, and a lot of ink is spilled, as they, said, they say, about who this is addressing. Is this addressing believers within the church? Um, in a similar way that chapter 2 addressed the rich and the poor within the congregation and how the poor were being mistreated by, by other members of the congregation? Or is this addressing those outside the church, unbelievers, in some way or form? And I think I would have to agree with the latter because in this, and, and commentators point this out, that there's no um, repentance called for. It's only judgment. It's only condemnation that's coming against these rich people here. Um, however, we have to recognize that, unfortunately, there is greediness and sometimes injustice occurring inside the church. However, when, when one considers the corrupting power of riches, we know that that sometimes that affects believers as well. So there, I, there is a warning here for us. Various commentators have highlighted the similarities between James in this passage and some of the Old Testament prophets. We compare James to some of the, the Old Testament wisdom literature. But here in this text, we want to think about how the prophets sometimes speak against other nations. Pagan nations that surround the people of God... And you see in Isaiah, for instance, these series of woes that are pronounced against surrounding nations. You see it also in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel speaks against Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. Now, was that because Pharaoh was going to read Ezekiel's words? Probably not. Those served as another purpose for the people of God. We know that God's word will not return to him void... And so we know that there's a reason that this text is here. There's a reason for the people of God, and there's a reason for us to listen to it. In those Old Testament texts, the, the prophets did it to announce God's coming judgment upon those oppressive nations. Um, there's also a purpose in that, that that served to comfort God's people and to teach them how to live pleasing lives to God. And I think all three of those things could be said about this text. As a warning, um, as a comfort, and as a teaching tool to teach God's people how to live. And all of those are in this text. So even if we consider this as being primarily about unbelievers, there's things we need here this morning as well. As we look at these verses, we see three things. First of all, that riches are fleeting. Secondly, that riches can corrupt. And then finally, that the misuse of riches brings condemnation. James has already told us, as we mentioned um, in the previous chapter, that life is fleeting. We, he says life is uncertain. And here he tells us that riches, too, are fleeting and uncertain. 
riches will not last either. The words that James uses are quite searing. We know from previous texts that James is not afraid to be direct in, in how he approaches us and how he brings God's word. Um, he's already dealt with the tensions between the rich and the poor. Um, but, but here, as we've said, he's indirectly addressing the unbelieving rich. And it's though, as though he's taking it to the next level to, to really jolt them or, or to speak in such a way to help us understand the seriousness of what he's saying. He speaks to those who are likely rich landowners who employ day laborers to help them plant and harvest their crops and to make even more money. This language here is is some of the strongest in the New Testament. Look at the first verse. He says, in a sense, listen here, you rich people. There are miseries coming upon you. Weep and howl for what is about to happen to you. Doesn't that sound like the voice of a prophet? I think it does. But why is James so harsh with the rich? Well, it's because of what they're doing. They're hoarding up wealth. They are thinking that their earthly treasure can be stored away and grow and grow simply for their own enjoyment and comfort. They are stockpiling stuff. Now, when we think of the term hoarding, we might think of the TV show that portrays people that have some type of, of uh, a disorder or something that, that causes them to collect and, and, and stockpile things that, that many people think are worthless. And eventually they live in, in a home filled with filth and decay. That's not what we need to think of when we think of hoarding in this text. What James is condemning here are those who probably have the nicest homes. Who probably have people to take care of their home, to clean their home, to take care of their gardens or whatever it was. They are business owners, the wealthy farmers that have put their trust in riches. They're the ones that fail to recognize that everything belongs to God. They act as though their things are theirs and theirs alone. As believers in God, we know that everything belongs to God. But these men did not recognize that. They treated their possessions not as a gift, not as something that they were called to steward as as God's children, but as, as something for their own personal enjoyment. They act as though they and their riches will last forever. But we know that riches do not last. We've seen, if, if you've lived very long, you've seen a series of economic downturns. When we lived in Wichita, it was centered around the aircraft industry. I moved to Houston and everything's about oil. And there's ups and downs to these kinds of markets. And if you've lived very long, you've seen them. And many of you, unfortunately, have seen your investments go up and down as well. But we know that wealth is not certain. We are not guaranteed of prosperity. God said in, through the prophet Haggai to his people that he could simply blow upon the things that they hold dear and they would be gone. If you live only for money, if your life is only about stuff, James says in strong words, you will be judged. His words are very similar to our Lord Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount as he spoke about money. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Jesus and James are saying, Riches are fleeting. Don't trust in them. 
And if you set your heart upon them, if they are what you love the most, you will be judged. We learn in verses 2 and 3 some of the details of what happens to these treasures upon earth that, that these men were holding so tightly and so dear. James says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. He focuses on clothing just like Jesus did. Why? Well, probably because many people who are, uh, like to show off their riches like to show off their riches through their clothes. They like for you to know that they know fine clothes and that they can buy them and, and wear them. They make a statement where they go. If, if James were writing today, he might condemn us for the expensive cars that we drive that we can't afford. But we know that all riches can be destroyed. He says their fancy clothes are moth-eaten. Now that's a phrase that might be unfamiliar to some of the younger people in here. I remember uh, going through closets and drawers and smelling mothballs as a kid because my mom would, would put those in there to keep the moths from, from uh, laying eggs and the larvae from eating holes in clothes. I don't think that's probably as much of an issue in our airtight and air-conditioned homes as, as it used to be. But the point James is making is no matter how expensive your clothes are, they're going to wear out. And they're, they're just simply that. They're just stuff. Don't miss James's point. He's saying that even silver and gold, things that, that we recognize are not susceptible to rust in the sense that iron might be, those things can be corroded, figuratively speaking, as well. Those things can be lost as well. They're fleeting. Riches are fleeting. All of the stuff you have is just stuff. Have you ever bought a new article of clothing, you've tried it on, you thought it fit you well, you thought it was attractive, you brought it home, and then maybe you forgot about it. Maybe you, maybe you didn't get in the habit of wearing it, and then a few weeks, months, years later, you recognize, oh, I guess I'll get rid of this. You take it, you throw it in the Goodwill pile with the tag still on it. You're, the values that we place upon things change. Ultimately, all the things that you have will end up on the Goodwill pile. Yet it's easy to envy the rich, our culture tells us continually that more is better, that the one with the most toys wins. They even play upon our discontent and greed and show us TV shows that feature the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But think with me for a little bit. Think of all the problems that you face this week. How many of those could be solved if you had an unlimited supply of money? Now, money won't solve every issue. It won't heal you, but it could get you the best doctor. It won't necessarily get you off the hook if you're charged with a crime, but it could afford the best lawyer. It can afford things that people that do not have those privileges do not have. The point is, is that wealth is powerful. Our author, one author has stated our relationship to the things of the world like this. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. This author is echoing the psalmist that we become what we worship. The things of the world that, that, that we amass to ourselves are vain and lifeless, and if we worship them, if that's where we place our heart upon those things, we are vain and lifeless as well. So what do you revere? What do you worship? Is your heart set upon the things above where Christ is? It is only in Him that we can truly find redemption and restoration. 
This passage helps us and reminds Christians that riches are fleeting. It shows us that even things that we think have enduring value still rust and corrode. Riches do not solve all your problems, and those who serve riches will meet a miserable end. Secondly, riches can corrupt. Not only are they fleeting, and they will soon fly away, but they can corrupt us. Let me say that even more strongly. The improper view of riches will corrupt us. We can be sure of that. If we make it an idol, it will corrupt us. James helps us to see what the love of riches has done for the men in our text. Their, their greed has kept them from paying their employees. They kept back their wages by fraud. Men of, of that day, many of them were, were day laborers. We still have them today. Not very far from here on any given morning, you can, you can drive by uh, various locations and find uh, men that are eager to work for that day's labor, those day, that day's wages. But in the first century, these men would work and they would get paid. They would eat the bread of that day. They would get up the next morning and do it all again. They didn't have the luxury of presuming that a job was waiting for them the next morning like most of us are used to. They needed every penny they earned from every day that they worked. These landowners, these wealthy farmers or whatever they were that, that James is, is speaking to in these strong words, they received the benefit of that work. They profited from the, these laborers, and yet they were refusing to compensate them accordingly. To them, that was just a small amount, in, in a sense a bother to them perhaps. But for the worker, it was his daily food. They were just the help. They were just cogs in the wealth-making machine. How affluence can lead to insensitivity. It's though the wages that the landowners had kept back were crying out from their pockets. They were speaking condemnation against them. Now, it's easy to hold men in contempt who mercilessly take advantage of others. Um, men like Bernie Madoff, if you remember from 10 or 15 years ago, the, the billionaire that that um, was the mastermind of the greatest Ponzi scheme in history, had taken billions of dollars from investors. And, and, and it's easy to make someone like that a universal enemy. He was able to cheat for a long time, and he kept getting richer and richer. Yet that same evil that was in the heart of a man like that rests in all those who love their riches the most. It's only a difference of degrees. Too many people want just a little more and a little more until their lives are consumed with getting more wealth, more stuff. They're on an endless quest to get more. However, God calls his people to something different. We are called to have compassion upon the poor and disadvantaged. Under the old covenant, the, the people of God were told to, to leave the corners of their field unharvested. The purpose of that was, was that so the poor could come along and glean the grain and, and reap the benefit of, of those landowners. They were called to, to leave grapes in the vineyard. So in a similar fashion, the poor could come along and receive the benefit of that. God spoke through Zechariah the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. Or the poor. We see all throughout scripture that, that God has a special place in his heart 
for the underprivileged, for the disadvantaged, for the widow, the poor, the fatherless, the orphan. So we, as followers of God, as God's children, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too should share that passion and that, that compassion for those. God's people are to be ones who love mercy, who give generously and strive to be just in all their dealings. But the men of this text were none of those things. In fact, verse 5 tells us that they condemned and murdered the righteous man. These workers were suffering physically and, and lacking their daily bread. And, and perhaps some had even died at, because of, these, of, of, the, of the fraud of these men. The word condemned is a legal word meaning to pronounce judgment against someone. And it's, in, it's very possible that they were even involved in legal disputes with these landowners over their wages. I, it, we don't know for sure. But they lost because um, they, it, you know, they, they took advantage of them. They were condemned by these landowners. And the sad thing is, is they seem unable to resist them. The end of our text says, the righteous one does not resist you. It's very likely they did not because they could not. And it seemed that these landowners had gotten away with it, just like many are able to today. Yet God is watching. And that brings us to our third point, that the misuse of riches brings God's wrath and condemnation. God sees the plight of those who have suffered, just as the cry of the withheld wages were crying out. So the cries of the oppressed reached the ears of our Lord. And if you notice here in the ESV, it calls him the Lord of hosts. That's that word Sabaoth, the Lord Sabaoth, which means the God of the armies. Martin Luther used that in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord Sabaoth, his name, he never changes. He is the God of the armies. This is Jehovah that will win in the day of battle. These men lived in the world as, as though it was all that there was. They were unaware of God's gaze upon them. Three times in these verses, we see references to God's judgment. The first is in verse 3. Look with me, if you will, at that part. It says that, that you have laid up treasure in these last days. They were in that day, and we are still, 2,000 years later, living in the last days. Now, that's a phrase that I heard often growing up, but never heard it defined very well. In, in my youth, I just assumed it happened probably 10 or 20 years maybe before I was born. Maybe, maybe a little before that. Maybe with the dawn of the nuclear age. I really didn't know. But biblically speaking, and when you see, when you read Acts 2 and you look at Peter's sermon, the last days were prophesied by the prophet Joel. And Peter said in that sermon, this is being fulfilled today. So what we see about the last days and what we need to remember when we see that phrase in Scripture, we need to think about Christ's death, His resurrection, His ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all of those things that happened at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, up until now, till Christ returns. That's all the last days. But when you see that phrase, it should remind you that Christ is coming. We don't talk about Christ's second return a lot, but Christ is coming, and Christ will come as a judge. And he's, that's what James is saying to these men. Christ is coming. You're heaping up these treasures in these last days. But be reminded, these are the last days that you live in. And there's a reason he puts that in there. 
ask yourself this morning, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, how will you wish you have spent your money? We are all reasonable men and women, and we should remember that the choices we make today, we're going to remember those on the day of judgment. We need to live today with that in view. We need to make choices today that we wish we would have made on that day of judgment. Think about how God measures wealth and generosity and live accordingly. He sees all today and we must give account someday. The second reference is, is what we just mentioned, that he is Lord Sabaoth. He is the God of armies. He's the God who delivers. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who is and was and is to come. That term points to the Lord who has every power at his disposal. No need is outside of his gaze. No injustice escapes his view. Here the, the righteous may have lost their day in man's court. But in the courtroom of God, the judge sees all. He knows all. And he will make all things right. Hebrews 4 reminds us that no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He is the Lord and judge of all the earth. That should make a difference in how we live. The third reference to God's judgment is in verse 5. He says that these ungodly rich men have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. They have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. The language used here points to extravagant comfort. Soft and luxurious ease. The phrase lived in pleasure suggests the breaking down of restraints. Together, they convey a message of a life without self-denial. A life where one could pursue anything they so choose, whether it be noble or wicked. It's not necessarily saying that they're pursuing vice, but it's saying they have everything at their disposal. And that's true for, rich, for, for filthy rich people today. That they have everything at their disposal. One thinks of the rich man and Lazarus, of whom Jesus spoke in Luke 16. The man enjoyed all the fine things of life. The text says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Here he is just enjoying every day to the fullest because he had that privilege compared to this poor man that he ignored. The rich man, of course, in that parable was lost in eternity. And then he could only be reminded of the good things that he had enjoyed in this life. The good things that he enjoyed because he had everything at his disposal on this earth were only a memory that tormented him. That man and the men in our text had lived only for this life. They had no idea that one day there would be a reckoning. They would be called to give account. Their self-indulgence only served to further condemn them and to fatten them for the day of judgment. As I thought of this, I, I, I thought of a a, a, a kind of a homely experience from, from my past. When we lived in Kansas, we had, we had chickens. And I was told by a friend of mine that, that also raised chickens, he said, get this one breed of chicken because they put on weight so fast, you will be amazed. And you can butcher them in eight weeks and they'll weigh eight pounds or whatever they were supposed to weigh. The thing about these chickens was, by about six weeks, they were so fat they couldn't move. And all they did all day was sit and eat. And I, I was tempted to 
pull the food away from them because that's all they did was just ate and got fatter. However, I wanted them to be fat because in a couple weeks I was going to put them in the freezer and I wanted every ounce on those chicken legs that, that I could get. And so they just sat there and got fatter. And that, that illustration is kind of gruesome and, and earthy, but that's really what James is saying. That's, that's what these rich people were doing. They were just feeding themselves and getting fatter, not recognizing the judgment of God that was coming upon them. So how do we view this text, these, these harsh words towards these unjust, unbelieving rich people? What is the gospel solution? What is the alternative to what we see here? Well, it's pretty black and white. There's a lot of negative here, and it's hard to, to think very positive on a text like this. But it's easy, in a sense, when we look at the contrast of what these people were doing and what we are called to and how we are called to live and what we are called to love when it comes to money. Scripture is full of teaching about money. We've talked about some of that from Christ's Sermon on the Mount. But first, we must remember that wealth has a purpose. I'm not here to say that it's wrong to be rich. If, if you have millions of dollars in your bank account, praise the Lord. I'm happy for that. I hope that you use that and steward that for God's glory. It's not wrong to be rich, but it is wrong to desire riches. 1 Timothy 6 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So it's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong to love money. That same passage speaks about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says in, in 1 Peter, it is through craving, through this craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As James has often challenged us, where is your heart in this? Are you setting your affection on things below or on things above? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been given so much. That's where our hearts should be. But you don't have to be super rich to be a hoarder or to be greedy. It's a matter of your heart. You can, you can be greedy over that cup of coffee from Starbucks. That can become, even that can become a functional idol to you. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is, Jesus said. Is your treasure in heaven this morning? Is that where you're laying up treasure? That's the way you preserve your wealth, by laying it up in heaven. I hope you are familiar with the book by Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle. He's, it, he has uh, many great quotes in there, but one that I want to leave with you this morning is that God prospers me, he says, not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. Are you living in that way? I hope it's easy as, as you see these strong words against the rich, these unbelieving rich, to consider the opposite of their actions, of, of things that we should pursue as followers of Christ. I appreciate it in, in, in Brother Darrell's Sunday school class. He asked us several times, are you wholly following the Lord? And so I, I want to I bring that down and fine-tune it a little bit. Are you wholly following the Lord with your checkbook? 
You know, when, when we give, and, and this, is, this is not wrong, but if we give to a Christian organization, we expect them to be responsible. And there's even a seal of approval of, of an organization that independently audits some um, organizations to make sure that they are, that they are um, above board in all their financial transactions. But what about you? Are you willing to let God scrutinize your spending? Are you seeking to spend every dollar for his glory and for the good of others? So look at, at what they did. They were hoarders. We already said that. But against that, we consider wise stewardship. God calls us to wise stewardship. He doesn't call us to poverty necessarily, but he calls us to be good stewards of everything that he has given to us. These men were greedy. And over against that, we, as followers of Christ, should be compassionate. We should live lives of contentment and generosity. That same passage um, in 1 Timothy says, Therefore, having food and raiment, let us therewith be con content. We're called to be content with the simple things of life. Kevin DeYoung, in his effort to describe a biblical view of riches, has said that we should enjoy them the most, need them the least... And give them away most freely. We should enjoy them the most. It's fine to enjoy the things that God has given. The, the blessings that he has placed upon you. Enjoy them to his glory. But need them the least. Don't need those things. And be willing to give them away most freely. These men described in the text were extravagant. They lived lives of self-indulgence. And over against that, as we've already alluded... We should live lives of simplicity and self-denial. We should not need the things of this world. A man told me a story of, of a man who had, who had purchased a boat, and he was asking his friends what he should name the boat. People like to put names on their boats, give it some character. And this man had probably spent more than he should have on this boat. And his friend told him, he said, what if you name your boat Missionaries Not Sent? Missionaries, not sent. So I ask you, do you give sacrificially? Do you give till it hurts? Do you consider not just what you have given, but what you've given up for the work of the Lord? We are only given one life. I think I said this last time as we talked about the sin of presumption. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. May we live each day and spend each dollar as though the Lord is watching because he is. May we live quorum Deo. May we live before his face. Let us pray.